You're listening to Plenary Session. In this week's Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I'm joined in Plenary Session HQ by Dr. Stephanie Halverson. Dr. Halverson is Division Chief of the Division of Hospital Medicine here at OHSU. She's an Associate Professor of Medicine and a practicing hospitalist. And she's going to talk about a very interesting article that she co-authored in JAMA as a viewpoint about the expert halo effect and whether or not this effect has a role in P&T committee formulary meetings. You won't want to miss this discussion. It's quite interesting. But first, I'm going to talk about a research letter that caught my eye in JAMA Internal Medicine. It's entitled The Evaluation of the Inclusion of Studies Identified the FDA as Having Falsified Data in the Results of Meta-Analyses, the Example of the Apixaban Trials. And basically, what these authors do is ask, what would have happened to a meta-analysis if the authors excluded a clinical trial that had at least some data that looked fabricated or falsified. And they ask how many of these meta-analyses would tip. And that led me down a rabbit hole, and I'm going to tell you what I found in this very interesting paper. You won't want to miss it. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us, patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose, and supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. So first, the research letter. Evaluation of the inclusion of studies identified by the FDA as having falsified data in the results of meta-analyses, the example of the Apixaban studies. So, these authors in JAMA Internal Medicine cite a recent paper by Charles Seif, who is an investigative journalist. And this paper was entitled, Research Misconduct Identified by the FDA, Out of Sight, Out of Mind, Out of the Peer-Reviewed Literature. And in this article, Mr. Seif points out that there are some examples in full FDA reviews where the FDA notes that there appears to be some irregularities, perhaps even fraud or falsified data that was a part of clinical trials that led to U.S. Food and Drug Administration drug approval. One of these trials was for Apixaban, which was tested against Coumadin in a randomized controlled trial for atrial fibrillation entitled Aristotle. This was a paper that came out a while back in JAMA IM. It came out in April 2015, and somehow it slipped past my radar. I didn't see it at the time. Um, but Mr. Seif details case number four in this paper, and let me read it to you. A clinical site in China taking part in a large trial of apixaban, a novel anticoagulant, had apparently altered patient records. If one were to exclude data from the patients at that site, the claim of statistically significant mortality benefit disappears. For this reason, among others, the FDA wrestled with whether it was appropriate to allow the manufacturer to claim a mortality benefit. None of this discussion appears in the literature. The claim for the mortality benefit, which has appeared in the literature since 2011, consistently relies on the full data data set, including data from the site at which research misconduct allegedly occurred. And then he ends with this quote from the agency, one FDA analyst commenting on the quote, data quality issues in this clinical trial complained about the agency's lack of transparency and poor handling of evidence of problems with trial data. Quote, some of the responsibility for the data quality issues rests with us, the FDA. We have approved drugs ignoring similar data quality issues, granting superiority claims, and not discussing in the labels the data quality issues. We must stop doing this. So this was a descriptive study that appeared in JAMA Internal Medicine. Now, a few years later, Craig Garmendia from the Office of Bioresearch in the Office of Regulatory Affairs of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and colleagues has reanalyzed meta-analyses that contained Aristotle. Here's what they did. They identified all meta-analyses that included Aristotle clinical trial data, determining whether or not novel anticoagulants were superior to Coumadin. It was found in 22 meta-analyses. The median weight of the publication with falsified data towards each meta-analysis was 37.3%, uh, which for those of you who've done meta-analyses is 
a significant proportion of the weight of the meta-analysis. In our reanalysis of the 22 meta-analyses, we found that 46% yielded results that would change the initial meta-analysis finding. Each affected meta-analysis had a median of nine publications, and the median meta-analysis publication insight journal impact factor was 5.8. The median weight of the publications with falsified data was 55%. They also found that 32 out of 99 analyses yielded results that would change the conclusions of the initial analyses. 31 of those, 97%, no longer favored apixaban and 1% favored the control. They conclude the following. The study found that 46% of all meta-analyses publications had conclusions altered by publications with falsified data, and 32% of the analysis had a considerable change in the outcome. This study was limited to only meta-analyses that contained Aristotle publications identified by SIFI to contain falsified data. They do note that not all the data in Aristotle were falsified, but because researchers knowingly published falsified data, a form of research misconduct, we removed all the data. So I guess I would say that you know this research letter is not enough to lead one to believe that we have nothing but erroneous um, uh, conclusions regarding apixaban. However, I think this research letter is enough um, to point out that this is something that I knew absolutely nothing about, and I follow this space rather closely, and I guess I was surprised to know that the mortality benefit would vanish um, in that apixaban study if one were to exclude data from the site that there was a claim of falsified um, patient records. Um, that uh, that that concerns me, I guess, because I had always taken that mortality benefit, um, you know, as if it um, were a rock solid uh, finding. Well, I urge readers to take a deep look at this paper, Research Misconduct Identified by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, out of sight, out of mind, out of the peer-reviewed literature. It's quite interesting. And on that positive note, we'll turn to our interview with Dr. Stephanie Halverson. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Stephanie Halverson. Dr. Halverson is Associate Professor of Medicine here at the Oregon Health and Science University. She's a hospitalist medicine here, and she's the Division Chief of the Division of Hospital Medicine, a position that she has taken over just very recently. Is that right, Dr. Halverson? Yes, just in September. From Dr. Hunter. Correct. Who's the prior Division Chief. Mm -hmm. So heavy is the head that wears the crown. <laughs> um, and. Um, Dr. Halverson has a number of um, roles she plays on campus. Uh, she runs the hospital medicine program. Um, she attends frequently on service and, and typically on the teaching service, is Correct. that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, as well as being in charge of a group of people in charge of the integration of clinical practice guidelines um, for primary care conditions. Is that fair to say? Sure, yeah, well put. And uh, that's a title you've had for, for a bit longer. How long have you held that role? About uh, a year as the director, interim director of that program. Mm -hmm. I've been a medical director for clinical integration for maybe three years now. And I think um, as you're looking at my CV, the one thing I think you can safely say is I'm a generalist. You're so generalist. I've worn a lot of hats here. I've done a lot of different things. For a time, I was one of the um, associate program directors for the internal medicine residency here, which was another job that I loved. Um, so I've kind of dabbled throughout my career here in a number of things. Um, and I, I finally decided to just embrace that. Uh -huh. Being a generalist means I don't maybe have a lot of depth in a lot of areas, but I have a lot of breadth. And you get to move around. Every mm -hmm. few years you get to move into something different. And then let me tell listeners a little bit more about you. Um, you've been at OHSU uh, since your residency. You're in resident here. You went on to be chief resident here, mm -hmm. um, an illustrious position that uh, we rightfully did not give Dr. Tom DeLore <laughs> if he's listening. He... Uh, he, it's yes, a, it, he brings that up from time to time. Yeah, from time. It's pretty much the only thing he brings up about chief residents. Um, that he he was spurned for chief resident. Um, and um, uh, but you're originally from Minnesota. I am. I'm a Minnesota girl. I attended Carleton College in mm. Northfield, Minnesota. Um, I left for a year and worked um, at a company now known as the Advisory Board. Back then, it was the mm. Advisory Board Company in Washington D.C. While I was applying to medical school, and then um, attended University of Minnesota Medical School. Met my husband there, and we couples matched here. I see. And he's now in emergency medicine. I see. So do you miss the um, Minnesota winters? 
I sure do not, and especially <laughs> not this winter. I heard what you had to say about Chicago uh, on a recent podcast. And, oh, you did? Uh, oh, yeah. Yes, it's a wonderful place to live eight months out of the year. Yeah, I think it applies to Minneapolis as well. Yeah, it's a beautiful city. Just, yeah. just, just those four months that are really, really <laughs> painful. Yeah, it's hard to sort of explain that sometimes you step outside and your face hurts the moment it feels that cold air. Yes. Now, one of the things you wrote very recently that um, you know I really enjoyed reading was a viewpoint in, in JAMA uh, with Jared Austin, who's another faculty member here. And this was entitled, Reducing the Expert Halo Effect on Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committees. Um, and I'm gonna unpack it a little bit, but first, is it fair to say that you sit on the OHSU P&T Committee? That's correct. And the P&T Committee is something that lots of universities have, um, and it decides what are the drugs of all the drugs that are approved um, that we ought to stock in our pharmacy um, with the idea that stocking these drugs is not a trivial thing. It often has a cost just to keep a stock of them. You're nodding. It's fair to say? Yeah, that's ab absolutely right. And one of the things I've learned is um, there are a lot of drugs that are very seldom used. Think of um, anti-venom type drugs mm -hmm. that are very expensive to keep around. And so there's a real science to knowing how much do you need to have available mm -hmm. Um, what is the shelf life of that drug? How often is it going to get used? And I, my sense is that being a university hospital, the stakes are that much higher because everyone expects us to have everything mm, all the I time. See. I see. If anything, we're going to err on the side of inclusion. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a real cost because when it expires, the hospital potentially could be out some amount of that cost of the drug. Yep, exactly. I see. And so we have a number of anti-venom because there's, a, there's many venomous snakes in Oregon, <laughs> at least in eastern Oregon. <laughs> I, that may be true. I'm not sure. Actually, I'm not sure either. Yeah. I, I, I will urge a plenary session <laughs> listener who's an please, expert. Please respond with the snakes of Oregon. Yes, I actually, <laughs> I will direct this to if Dr. House is listening, he's a colleague of mine who is an expert on, on snakes and snake venom. Um, but one of the things um, you say in this article, I guess I'll just read some parts to, it, uh, to, the, to the audience, which I think is really put well. Uh, at a recent P&T committee meeting, a highly respected specialist presented a novel hemostatic drug for addition to the formulary. The drug had been shown in a phase two trial to significantly reduce anti-factor 10A activity in healthy volunteers, and a subsequent uncontrolled open-label trial showed evidence of hemostasis. But of course, it's uncontrolled and open-label, so it's hard to know if that's beyond what would have happened if you had just observed patients or given them something that we do have, PCC. The cost of the drug was approximately $25,000 to $50,000 per treatment course, or as we call it in oncology, a bargain. Um, <laughs> additionally, due to a potential increase in thrombotic risk, a boxed warning was required by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The specialist acknowledged the shortcomings of the trials and the potential risks, but advocated for the addition of the drug to the formulary based on the argument that there were few other options. Discussions of the merits of the drug ensued, and after 15 minutes, the committee was asked to vote. And so you talk about how this is something that happens across America, and I would even, you know, it's not just P&T committees. I, I mean, I think it's it's beyond that. It's also in um, groups that play a role in making Medicaid coverage decisions or making insurance coverage decisions. They're all dealing with this sort of thing. And, and what you talk about in this article very nicely is the expert halo effect, which is that many of the people who are on this committee are specialists in evidence appraisal um, at evidence-based medicine and, and synthesis of evidence, but they may not always have the technical expertise for that particular drug in that particular setting. And they invariably need to call in the technical expert. But then what happens is the technical expert can come in the room and the technical expert can be very good and know, you know the, the pathophysiology of the disease, but perhaps their focus is not evidence appraisal and they are not routinely on P&T committees and so they may almost invariably want every drug included um, and, and, and they come with a halo um, that the committee kind of defers to their authority and that's kind of the issue that you, you were probing in this, in this viewpoint. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think, you know, um, first I want to give credit to Jared Austin, who's one of my pediatric hospitalist colleagues. And Jared and I sit on the P&T committee and I think have similar... Um, uh, critical maybe, thinking. Critical thinking and maybe similar ethics, too. There have mm. been a couple of times where we've kind of sidebarred after meetings and said, you know, how did that feel to you? Um, and really, what's our job here? And, you know, I think we both take, and everyone on the committee takes this job very seriously, which is... You know, in my mind, just because the FDA approves a drug doesn't necessarily mean that that drug is ready for prime time. 
I think a lot of times um, the FDA is under pressure to approve drugs that, mm-hmm. like in this condition, very few alternatives exist. I can understand why they wanted to expedite the review and, and the approval of this drug. Um, but the approval was based on not very good science. I mean, there was nothing showing that this drug actually was effective in humans who were bleeding. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, in a cheap drug, I would have raised my eyebrows. But in an expensive drug, you have to say, is this really adding value or could we potentially be doing harm? Mm -hmm. And so Jared and I both kind of made comments during the meeting about, you know, our uncertainty about whether to approve the drug and afterwards talked about, you know, it was really hard to have that conversation because the expert who was requesting this addition was there in the room and is somebody that we both admire Mm -hmm. greatly. Mm -hmm. And so there was that added layer of kind of feeling like you were disappointing someone Mm -hmm. if you Mm -hmm. said no. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the first time. That just happened to be the most recent time. There had been um, some other drugs um, that ICU uh, providers had asked to include that I felt similarly about where I really felt this internal pressure to to vote yes and add it to the formulary, which would have been the easy thing to do. But I... um, you know, wanted to also be true to what I thought I was being asked to do as a member of this committee. I see. And 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 this observation you made, you you did research into, and you noticed that this is a well-established psychological phenomenon that um, a group of people um, can often place, I don't want to say unfounded, but perhaps excessive trust in the perceived expert um, and make decisions that they otherwise wouldn't make. Um, and the example you give in the article is something about a, a, a sort of, it's thought to be a contributing factor in wilderness tragedies. So for instance, an experienced mountaineer is leading a group um, you know, to the summit of Mount Everest and, and the group feels this reluctance of, I don't know if we can make it, but you know, if the expert thinks we can do it, we probably should get out there and give it a try, even if a storm is coming in or something like that. Um, is that what you found? That yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I have to credit Jared with that example. Actually, I think the the conversation we had initially was just under the heading of bias. What are the ways that we're influenced when we're making decisions? Mm-hmm. And and I think we all know now that you know there's um, financial bias. So people who have stock in a pharmaceutical company probably should not be on the P and T committee. There's there's kind of a conflict of interest and a potential for bias there. Um, but this felt like a different kind of bias. We felt mm-hmm. kind of pulled to make a decision that wasn't necessarily in keeping with our better judgment. And so I credit Jarrett with that uh, particular um, example of the, the wilderness uh, expedition. Um, but I think it resonates for all of us, right? You know, just when somebody is the expert and in medicine, we are pretty deferential to our specialty experts. Mm-hmm. They have much more. I was talking about breadth and depth before. They have right. so much depth in an area. You're really prone to really trusting their judgment and their expertise and maybe ignoring your own. And um, the the wilderness trekking example, I think, um, resonates with a lot of people where they say, you know, I, I thought I saw that storm coming. I thought we were going the wrong way, but I didn't say anything because they were the expert. That's very interesting. You know, e- even in my field of oncology, um, where we are to some degree specialists, we're specialists in hematology oncology, uh, there's specialties beyond specialties. And of course, there's some oncologists who are specialists in multiple myeloma or pancreatic cancer or lung cancer. And I sometimes discuss um, cases with my colleagues who are specialties in one tumor type. And when you tell them about a case of a patient who has a different cancer outside of their sort of narrow expertise, and you mentioned that you know a certain doctor attempted a certain therapy or a certain doctor recommended a certain procedure. Um, they quickly put on their evidence-based medicine hat and they start asking, "Oh, that doesn't you know what's the data for that procedure? Um, is that just based on pathophysiology? Is there clinical trial data? Uh, is it phase two data? Where do they test that in?" I, I, and, and then they sort of you know they're skeptical with me. And then at the same time, you ask them about similar situations within their own f- specialty where they know the molecular science at a depth beyond, and they are making arguments with the same level of data, but they are blind to the fact that they're sort of making the same leaps of faith as someone else in a different tumor type, because they're in it, and they're sort of stewed in that language. Um, You're nodding. You feel like this is a true phenomenon. Oh, definitely. Um, But, you know, I think where it comes from is a really good place. We all want to do right for our patients, and I think it's very tempting. You know, the biologic plausibility is very... um, 
seductive. It's very seductive. Gosh, this should work. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, maybe I even did trials in this area or, or, you know, maybe I've had grants in this area and I've, I've looked into this and I really want for this to work. And I think it's tempting for all of us to just assume then that the data show that it works. Yeah. I, I mean, I think your article is very interesting and I encourage um, listeners to take, to read it because I found it fascinating. And I think it generated quite a lot of interest on social media, uh, right when it came out. Um, I guess I would say I I do fault the FDA a quite a, quite a bit on this space because um, you know the entire reason we as a society rely on the Food and Drug Administration in these cases is because um, we understand that in desperate and challenging situations, patients and physicians. Um, are in a vulnerable position. I would even say physicians are in a vulnerable position because we really want to do everything we can do for our vulnerable patients. Um, and we are not in the position always on the front lines to step back and look impartially at an entire body of literature. We don't have the ability to audit the primary study data. We don't have the ability to compel the company to run, conduct a randomized controlled trial in a space. The only place in society, in American society, that we have designated that authority is with the regulatory agency. And the regulatory agency has tremendous flexibility in deciding, and you don't say exactly, but I suspect this is Index and Ed Alpha. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Correct. Yeah, which is a which is a drug that and, and a trial that, you know, we bashed heavily on a prior episode of this podcast and, you know, with bloggers saying that this is um, marketing with the, you know, a veneer it, it's 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 science <laughs> a thinly veneer. veiled veneer. Yeah, yes. thinly veiled yeah. veneer of science over marketing. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you have drugs, um, um, as was pointed out, there are many people who say they were supposed to be on this drug, but they're not actually taking the drug. And then there are people who are taking the drug, but the half-life of the drug is relatively short, the anti-10A drugs, um, and it's going to wear off at a certain period of time. And unless you have a contemporary randomized control group to know what is the rate of major bleeding and what is the rate of thrombosis, if you don't administer the drug versus if you do administer the drug, you don't know what the drug is doing. And the trial is really... As you said, you know, it's not very good science. It's it's not really a useful scientific trial. Um, and so who should be tasked with demanding that we get useful information? P&T committees are in an impossible position because a company may not be able to be on the formulary at OHSU or in Fred Hutch or wherever, but they'll be on the formulary somewhere. And it's probably not that important to them to be on the formulary everywhere as long as they're in enough places because they can make it up by sort of raising the price of their drug. Um, but the only sort of entity in the healthcare space that can say, look, if you want to sell your product, which is bioplausible but unproven, you got to generate proof of clinical efficacy, and that requires a control arm trial. And I know this is an accelerated approval with a post-marketing commitment to do that, but that's four years from now. Mm -hmm. And this is a trial that could be run in three months if somebody were motivated. Um, but now the company is not motivated. In fact, they have every interest to drag their feet uh, and not generate those results in a timely fashion. What do you think about that? I, I couldn't agree more. I'm not sure I would necessarily assign all the blame to the FDA. I think there is so much incentive for pharmaceutical companies to manipulate you know, the years that they have on patent life mm -hmm. um, to, to get as much, as many approvals as quickly as possible with whatever evidence that they can get through because they have this window until the drug becomes generic to mm -hmm. really make a profit. I think th their incentive is to manipulate the FDA. I think the FDA, and, and I haven't looked at the FDA in many years. I gave a grand rounds on the subject when I was a chief resident with my colleagues. Um, this is now almost 15 years ago. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that ages me. Um, and at that time, I really investigated heavily the ways in which the pharmaceutical industry could influence FDA decision making. But my takeaway was the FDA just was not funded enough to do what we want it to do. Mm. That it was a you know that it would have required a lot more um, staff members to turn around approvals quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so part of what pharmaceutical companies could at least pay for at the time is accelerated approval. And, mm -hmm. and by paying for that approval. You know, I think that sets up another conflict of interest for the FDA. So I, I personally assign a little bit more of the blame, if there is to be blame, on the pharmaceutical companies who I think, you know, have a lot of incentive to manipulate both what they publish, what they share with the FDA, what they don't publish. 
Um, and and they've lobbied heavily for the rules that have structured the FDA. So that's I think right. Since you've looked at that, you know, you, prescription drug user fees is the number one source of revenue in many divisions of the FDA, particularly on hematology oncology. Um, that the bulk of the revenue for hiring staff comes directly from the user fee of the drug, hmm. the application fee, um, which is a perverse incentive. And you know, some people point out, but shouldn't the industry pay for the FDA? The, the FDA is providing a service for the industry and a public good. Um, and I would say yes, but they could pay that in the form of taxes and not in the form of direct payment per drug approval. Yeah. And um, a couple of years ago, Jeff Bien, the chief resident, uh, a later chief resident, uh, and I looked at sort of the problem of the revolving door, uh, which was that among FDA medical reviewers who left the agency, the number one place of destination of work was consulting for or working for the biopharmaceutical industry, um, which is, I think, an under-discussed potential conflict because, you know, I like to joke, if I knew there was a 60% chance that I'm going to be working at the University of Pittsburgh, I wouldn't say anything bad about the University of Pittsburgh. And I'd be very nice to people I meet from the University of Pittsburgh, and I try to play ball with them. Um, and I think that's another sort of perverse incentive. It's not unlike politicians becoming lobbyists or working right. for large lobby firms when they leave. You know, they, they do need to cultivate those relationships. I think that's true. You wrote this. Did it generate any backlash, particularly from experts who could who could see their own reflection in the mirror? <laughs> <laughs> if you're re referring to the expert who uh, we uh -huh. may have been referring to in that article, that expert was incredibly gracious. Uh, yeah, I uh, imagine. And, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there were some. I, I'm actually probably the only person in America not on Twitter, and you are one of the people I would follow if I were on Twitter oh, because you, I'm you. a huge fan. I'll pay you later. For um, that. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> um, so I didn't I didn't look at all the Twitter comments. I know that there were some. I did see on online there is a um, editorial or a commentary about mm -hmm. the article that's a little bit critical. Oh, somebody's critical of your. Oh, I see. It, but you know, I. You mean some rogue blogger? Is what you <laughs> some mean? Rogue blogger, some rogue blogger. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. of course. Um, but no, I, we didn't get any pushback. And actually, I think the most interesting thing that happened is we, of course, sent it to the chairs of our P and T committee after ah. it was, or as it, once we learned it was going to be published and just to let them know. And they were wonderfully gracious and invited us to talk about it at our next P&T meeting. Um, and I should just mention the timing. So we did not have the New England Journal Medicine, the, the recent article on Indexa. Ah, right. It hadn't at, been published yet. It hadn't yet. been published yet. Mm -hmm. So we, we only had the two that I referenced in the, yeah. in the paper. But don't worry, it didn't help us much it at all. It didn't help. Yeah, Actually, it validated the yeah. fact that we didn't add it to formulary, I think. Right, yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, so they at the meeting we talked about you know, part of what the paper is intended to do is just give some guidance around how might you minimize the expert halo effect and how do you sort of protect your P&T committee to do the work that it's intended to do. And um, so we had a discussion about that. And actually, we've changed some of our practices. We're going to mm -hmm. go to confidential voting. We used to have, you know, just kind of hands up around the table. But sometimes the experts are still in the room with us. Mm -hmm. Sometimes actually they're members of the committee. I see. Um, no, so that's a, that's a, that's confidential a good, voting. Yeah. Um, we talked about whether we could actually remove the expert from the discussion, yeah. um, but the problem is they are the content expert too, and it's really hard to. Re we need them for mm -hmm. their content, but they're expertise. not a voting member. They're not a voting member Good. at that point. Um, and uh, you know, the other thing we talked about is how can we increase the knowledge base for the members of the P&T committee. What is the job that we want them to do? And we don't actually need them to be experts in all of these various drugs. We have a number of wonderful pharmacists who are outstanding specialty pharmacists who bring us a lot of you know, data about the drugs and their efficacy. But what we need are people that are really skilled at um, understanding how good the science is. is yeah. Does the drug actually work? Yeah, methodologists. Yeah, does the drug work? Uh, is it better than what else is out there on the market? Was it? Did it have the right comparison groups. What is the cost of the drug? How much is it likely to be used? Mm -hmm. And if we do approve it, do we approve it for general use or with some specificity? Mm -hmm. And then if so, if it's only certain providers, you know, or certain diagnoses, you know, can we control the use of the drug? Things like that. So I do think um, one of the good things to come out of it is we've decided we want to do some more education for the members of our P&T committee mm -hmm. on some of these topics. And I think that's I think that's a very interesting point, and it's something that you know I've encountered as well. There's 
every now and then we write an article where we point out that some drug has a very poor evidence base and maybe it shouldn't have been approved. And I remember one time we wrote an article and you know it always has that token couple lines where you explain the mechanism of action. And this drug had a incredibly convoluted mechanism of action. And uh, I think it's fair to say we um, didn't state as clearly as we could have or perhaps slightly, you know, got a little bit of it incorrect, the mechanism of action. And so a reviewer pointed that out to us and, you know, helped us with that little mechanism of action. And, uh, but of course, they used that as grounds to say that our entire analysis was, you know, um, wrong. You, you know, they don't even know how this drug works at this very nitty gritty molecular level. But of course, at the end of the day, that was really irrelevant to the major, um, you know, clinical question, which is, does this drug work better than a placebo drug, uh, which our analysis was 100% on on point. Um, and this person did not, or perhaps use this as a convenient excuse, um, but ultimately I think, um, you know, reason did prevail uh, a- a- through the editorial process. Um, Can I just make one yes. comment about that? I would say this is where um, a lot of people are handicapped because, you know, we. I, I would hope that all of us learn in medical school and in residency some basic statistics. You know, what's the difference between an absolute risk reduction and a relative risk reduction, and how might those um, two values be skewed to get you interested in purchasing a drug versus not? But the kinds of analyses that you do and your teams do in your paper, I mean, very few people are equipped with that kind of statistical knowledge to really push back, and I, that concerns me greatly. Mm-hmm. That. Um, the kind of statistical gymnastics that get performed in mm-hmm. a lot of these drug studies make it very hard for people like myself to understand, is this drug working or not? Or is this just statistical wizardry? And you're also a very sophisticated reader. I can only imagine you know, the average practicing physician out there who doesn't have a heck of a lot of time and, and may not have a lot of experience really getting into the weeds on some of these sort of evidence-based questions, um, trying to understand the strengths and weaknesses. And I think that's in part why they trust the FDA so much. Uh, and when the FDA approves things very, with a very low bar, they so easily can fall prey to the marketing juggernaut. Well, I guess we can go there because <laughs> this is something we were talking about a little bit before. When I asked you, when you were chief resident here, you, you started to take an interest in the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's approval of drugs. And we were talking a little bit before about what led to that interest. And you were telling me that that was um, an era where even at a place like OHSU, a place that I think we think of as having clear firewalls separating scholarship from you know marketing efforts, um, that wasn't always the case, especially back then. Yeah, I mean, just to paint a picture, so I started my internship in 2001, and at that time, every resident conference, both morning report and noon conference, was drug rep sponsored. So they would bring us food, and they would be present. Um, You know, I I knew the drug reps personally. They were wonderful people. Um, But, I mean, the the presence was unmistakable. When you would go uh, rotate through a specialty clinic, um, I'm not going to name any names, but you know, lunch was often provided by drug companies. This is not that long ago, either that or I am older than I am allowing myself <laughs> to believe. But it doesn't seem like it was that, that, long, wasn't ago. that long ago. Yeah. And we did not have a strong conflict of interest policy around gifts. Mm. So a lot of our um, or speaking engagements and things like that. So a lot of our faculty um, were doing lectures, um, perhaps even on speakers bureaus at the time. So, um, you know, the way that it sort of affected me, I didn't, I just assumed that's how it was. That's actually how it was at my medical school too. It's how it was during my residency. But when I became a chief resident, um, I became very popular because I was the access point for the other residents. So probably almost daily, um, the drug reps would contact us with either, you were detailed. We were detailed, heavily mm. detailed. Are your residents, would they like to come to this lovely dinner? Mm. Would they like to give a talk even? Wow. And it struck uh, my co-chief residents, uh, Carrie Ryan, who's now the medicine clerkship director here and on faculty at the VA, and Sean LaSalle, who's a rheumatologist in Spokane, Washington now. Um, we really all kind of felt like this was not right. It just seemed uncomfortable, smarmy even. Your, your inner moral compass yeah. went off. Yeah. yeah, and not because, 
anyone was doing anything wrong. These were all well within our established rules at the time. It just, it seemed wrong. It seemed like the kind of thing that if a patient found out, I would feel uncomfortable about it. And that's kind of become my bar Mm -hmm. for, is this okay or is this not okay? Um, So we decided um, as chief residents, you have to give grand rounds each spring. So we decided to make um, kind of pharmaceutical marketing the topic of our grand rounds and very quickly decided actually to look at the FDA and the ways in which the pharmaceutical industry might influence FDA decision-making. Mm. And that that was one of your original interests in um, in academia as well. And then we did become unpopular, actually. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, drug reps would even come to Grand Rounds, and so they were at that Grand Rounds. And we um, we lost a little, pop, a little favor with um, our friends, the pharmaceutical reps at the time. I see. So I think it's yeah. a, it's just such an interesting issue because I think you're raising so many good points, which is one, you want to make the point that, you know, the people who work for industry and the people who work in the marketing arm, the drug reps, they're they're generally good people and, and you know, very pleasant people, if anything, more pleasant than the average person that's part of sort of the job description. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah. Remember, they, t- they used to recruit cheerleaders to uh, be drug reps. Yeah. yeah. And, and people yeah. who are, um, I think, uh, generally positive attitude and have good, uh, you know, the kind of personality people you'd want to hang around with. Um, at the same time, this arrangement would not exist if it were not lucrative for the companies making novel, branded, for-profit drugs. That's really why they're doing this. It, it has a return on investment of some sort. Um, the next thing I'd point out is that the Speakers Bureau you're alluding to, some of the listeners may not know what a Speakers Bureau mm-hmm. is. Um, I'll take a stab at it, but maybe you can tell me if I'm mistaken. But I think a Speakers Bureau is is defined as um, when a company recruits physicians or um, local uh, established people to go around, usually at a local level, like in the region, and deliver talks um, purportedly of an educational content. So, for instance, you could talk about you know depression, but heavily emphasizes the sponsor's product in this space and often uses slides made by the sponsor, and often has the immediate reinforcement of a drug rep from the back of the room telling the speaker, good job, you did a good job talking about our product, and you'd, oh, I mean in general, but mostly our product. Uh, Is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. And it's not people who are presenting like their own original research. Um, It may not be people who have done the laboratory work of it. It's people who are, um, you know, they have a reputation locally, and they use that reputation to peddle the product. Not only that, I will tell you as a as a resident, you know, those same experts were giving our noon conferences, and these, you know, I assume this happens everywhere. You you become absolutely enamored of your specialists and your mm-hmm. experts when mm-hmm. you're a resident. These are the people that teach you how to do, you know, teach you the the way to do medicine. Um, but they did not have to disclose their conflicts of interest to the house staff. And so when I started going to CME events after residency, that was the first time that I saw those same individuals actually share their disclosures. And I have to say, I remember being shocked that things that I assumed were absolutely the gospel truth from the expert that I admired, that person may have actually been getting you know, paid by that company. Mm-hmm. And so it really caused me to a little bit of inner conflict mm-hmm. about who to trust. Um, I want to say, you know, just to clear the air that fast forward to now, we have, you know, a very strong conflict of interest policy on campus. Mm-hmm. We, you know, actually the year after my chief residency, we did away with all of the pharmaceutical sponsored lunches and access to residents and things like that. So we residents have, went hungry that they, year. They did go hungry yeah. and it was, it was, uh, the, the poor chief residents who followed me, that was the hallmark of their chief year was the anger over no more free lunch. <laughs> and how do we really? get lunch paid for for these tired residents? Um, so anyway, we're in a much better place now where I think it's much more established that... At OHSU. At OHSU. Yeah, but yeah. about other universities, I, I uh, hardly um, hardly can imagine. I, I mean... You know, I um, I lecture when I feel like the opportunity to um, you know meaningfully change someone's mind is available. And I recently went and gave a lecture in global R and D at a major pharmaceutical firm, mm. uh, presenting some of the ideas I have. And I'll tell you, it um, uh, some of those ideas, of course, would be provocative. Um, but at the same time, there are people in the industry I think who are very devoted to actually developing drugs that actually are transformational, and I, and I think some of my message does resonate. Um, but I assiduously avoid conflict of interest and, of course, find ways to, you know, 
make sure I pack my own coffee and mm-hmm. water and, you know, <laughs> like I'm going into the desert for a long <laughs> voyage. But, but in part because I do think that these conflicts um, are very perverse and they matter a great deal. I mean, there's a wealth of data shows that affects prescribing decisions. And even if it didn't do that, the appearance of the conflict um, is, um, I think, very concerning. As you said, I mean, I couldn't imagine being a patient and finding out that my doctor recommended drug A over drug B. And then I learned that drug A costs, you know, infinitely times as many as, as much as drug B. And then I started to look to see that the evidence that drug A is actually better than drug B has to do with some unproven, unvalidated surrogate endpoint. There's no difference in quality of life mm-hmm. or survival. And then if I found out that that doctor received $90,000 in speaker's payments from that company, I think I would feel violated in some way. Um, I'm just, you know, I would feel wronged. Um, and I would feel like that's something that I wish they had told me or, you know, that why are they putting themselves in that relationship? Um, so I do kind of like your gut test, which is, you know, would you be proud if the patient knew this about me? Um, I think there's been a big effort to brand it the other way. And now people talk, talk about confluence of interest that I have, you know, who better than me? I, I'm being paid by these companies, so I know the best. And um, this is not a conflict. It's a confluence of interest. We all benefit from these great drugs. And um, they actually take pride in that I'm advising the drug companies um, this way. And the point I want to make is, you know, you can give advice to people. I give advice to students, but they don't give me $10,000 every time yeah. I give them some advice. Yeah, the, the psychology of gift giving, you know, it. I think where physicians were misled for a long time is they sort of thought it had to do with the value of the gift. Well, I don't mm. take expensive gifts or I only take lunch. And it turns out from, from what I learned years ago that it, really the size of the gift doesn't matter. It's the fact of the gift yeah. that, that causes that sense that you need to give something back. Um, and you know, I think the the same politician standard exists now. I think it's very easy for us to look and say, well, which lobbyist is paying that politician right. and not trust them? And and I think if we reflect that back on our own practice, we have to be really okay with what that looks like. And, you know, this is publicly accessible information now, thanks to things like the Sunshine mm-hmm. Act. You can look up physicians and see how many payments they get and see what they're for. Um, and you know, it's murky. I think the this is always a difficult conversation because everybody, it, I don't want to sound like I'm coming off of a high horse or mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. people are villains or pharmaceutical companies are evil. But we spend so much money, so much limited, precious money on these drugs. I think it's really imperative on us to make sure that they work mm-hmm. and that they're worth it. And so there's a lot of stuff you have to cut through to be able to answer that question. And if you're influenced in any way, I think, you know, you're not doing your patients a service. Yeah, and you're, and it, it's it's as if the, the judge is receiving payments from the prosecutor. Yeah. Yeah, uh, no. you're not impartial. Let's shift gears and talk mm-hmm. a little bit about leadership. <laughs> now that you're, you're the leader. I'm almost six months into being division chief, so I don't know if that, that I'm still definitely on training wheels in leadership. You're in the honeymoon period. I'm in the honeymoon period. And it's still, it's still nothing but <laughs> excitement and joy. So let me ask you, is this, um, you know, is this something you sought out um, uh, or is it um, something that you stumbled into um, being division chief? Uh, this role definitely is something that I stumbled into. It was not something I sought out, but um, I would describe myself now as mid-career. As I mentioned, I'm a generalist. I've done a lot of things. There are pages and pages of committees and things that I've been on in this institution. Um, And one of the things that I've realized in time is that I felt like I was ready to take on a leadership role. which I don't say easily. I think there's, you know, being mid, being junior is a reason that you you don't see yourself in leadership. I think sometimes it's hard. You, you always assume well, that's the more senior people. Right. You don't I'm have so- enough gray hair for right, that. Right. I'm associate right. professor. I'm not full professor. For example, I'm female. I think women often have a harder time envisioning themselves in leadership roles. But um, I had had enough exposure around the institution on both internal and external facing committees and things where I thought, you know, I. I think I am ready to lead something. Mm-hmm. So you have to check back with me in a couple of years to see how I actually did, uh-huh. but it's too soon to tell. I see. Uh, it must be tough because, you know, I, I um, because you're, you're leading people who 
often not easily led. Uh, I think doctors who are you know many years out of training, um, th that's a hard group of people to lead. Uh, they all have their own ideas about what they want. Um, and um, you know, uh, somebody told me something funny. And I guess I'll tell the story. It, they, this person told me that um, you know being in charge of a group of academic doctors um, is like um, owning a racehorse. Um, this is a, a racehorse that is a magnificent um, horse, and the horse is capable of running around this track, um, you know, in a, in a speed that you know just amazes you that this horse is capable of this. Um, and, but if you don't put a blanket on the horse when you put it in the stable, the horse is going to die. Uh, and and this is what this person analogized um, being in charge of a lot of academic physicians were. Um, they're really good at their scholarship, but it's the little things that they really that they really complain a lot about. Uh, what do I, you think? I would say I've been very very lucky. One of the the things about hospital medicine in general is that it tends to be a younger profession. So we have a lot of junior faculty in our division um, who are. It, it's not unlike working with medical students and residents. They so love what they do, and they so love patient care that it kind of rubs off on you. The so junior faculty. The junior faculty. Mm -hmm. So it, it is actually very inspiring to do it. Um, I think the one thing I've learned, though, is I sort of thought I had to come in and lay out my vision and like have some grand vision statement and sort of this is my tactical plan for the next couple of years. And I did start to craft one, and then I realized, even though I've been a member of this division for quite a number of years now, I had never been the leader of the division, and which means there was a lot um, that I didn't know. Even as a member of the division, you, you, you know, there's a lot you don't know about how other people are doing and what's working, what's not working. So instead, I just listened, and that's really what I've been doing for the last six months. I met with every single member, I think now, of the faculty. There's 40 of us. Um, I also oversee the group at um, one of our community hospitals. Um, and I've just been really trying to listen to what is it they love? What is it they want to change? What do they want from me? Um, and now I'm starting to string together a vision that I think is a little bit more inclusive of what the group really wants. Mm. And that's very clever. And uh, 40 is a big group of people. And uh, people have been doing it for... What's the rough breakdown? Like, how many people are five years into the job, and how many oh boy, are... well, so y y you might have to correct me on this, but I believe that the OHSU Hospital Medicine Division is like the second oldest in the nation. Oh, really? It started, I'm going to say, in '94, '95, or '96, um, and that core group of faculty that started this division are all still here. Really? Alan Hunter, Pete Sullivan, Seema Desai, Scott Sally, Rebecca Harrison. I hope I'm not missing anybody. Um, and they were really hired a little of a different model than what we think of now as a hospitalist. And hospitalists now are kind of the workhorse of every hospital. Um, they were really hired to be bedside teachers mm. and to be the workhorse for the hospital I at the same time. So, um, so it was a pretty inspiring group of people who really loved to teach. They really valued physical exam skills and bedside teaching. And then I was lucky enough to join them. I was the first hired in 2005. Um, with, into that core group. So we have that kind of stable, more senior group now. I don't think they think of themselves as senior, and they're probably going to, I'm going to hear about <laughs> it for calling them that. I didn't say old, I just said senior. Senior, yeah. Um, and then we also have a lot of younger, more junior faculty. How many have been here less than five years? I would say it's probably close to half. No, maybe a little less than that, maybe a third. And, and the... Um, the hospitals in your group, they're all, they all do some balance of teaching and service? They do, yeah. and um, That's different than a lot of places where some people are just pure service. It, it is, and I think it's been one of the um, strategies for success. We had, not to get too much into the kind of politics of our division, but no, we had kind of this, <laughs> yeah, this, it feels like a safe space. Um, we had a group that were, you know, this kind of, uh, teaching hospitalist model. And then we did, um, really what happened is the hospital capacity grew and it outstripped what the residents could take care of. And so we had to figure out a novel model for caring for patients. And so we started a private, quote unquote, private hospitalist group. And I, I, I don't know the years that that started. And I did not originally work in that group. I was on the teaching side. And we were sort of two separate parallel divisions within a division. What has happened over time is we've learned that 
people really want the fulfillment of teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably there's also something to be gained for keeping your skills up and doing the work yourself. And so oh, the blended model is really the model going forward. I see. Um, but to be honest, I have only worked on the teaching service with a few, you know, filling in here and there over uh-huh. the years. I'm going to now actually have some FTE on both services. You are. So that I think it's kind of important as the By leader choice, of the division. Yeah, so absolutely. You can see what, oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, so that I can know. You it's know. like undercover boss. You're exactly. Going into <laughs> I want to know what the aches and pains are in the, I see. You know, in the whole division. Um, so the blended model, I think, is a lot more successful for recruiting. That's what people want. I really? mean, if you ask our faculty, all of them want to do more teaching. It's not that you offer a higher salary than in private practice. <laughs> uh, let me be clear. The salary is lower. Yeah. 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 So there's got to be some, um, some some other things that uh, really motivate people. You know, I find that, um, I, you know, I have uh, uh, always been trying to sneak on that teaching service in Gen Med because I like, mm-hmm. I of course, who, who you know, it's a privilege to work with these residents. They're so good. You, you know, you, you can just uh, come in and you can trust them and you can teach them a few things and then you can also um, learn a few things from them too. Um, but I find it very difficult to sneak on. I've only been able to sneak on once uh, mm-hmm. when uh, the chief resident was on and I co-attended with her. Um, so we'll have to talk. Oh, really? <laughs> but it's a, it's a sought after spot. Though. It's very sought That's after. It's very, um, I mean, it is the first thing that fills up in our schedule. Really? Yeah. Everybody wants to do as much teaching as possible. So, yeah. you know, the and I hope the residents are listening to this and understand that it is really coveted because we get to work with them. Yeah, they really are that good, and they and the students too. They give you that passion for patient care that I think is otherwise, you know, easy to lose. It's prone to burnout. And actually, um, in addition to all those things, which I agree with 100%, I'll add. Um, there are things that when you, as a physician, you feel you really know and understand. But it's not until somebody asks you, why are you doing that? And you have to really actually actively articulate it that you realize what you do know and what you need to brush up on and that it isn't always as easy to articulate why you're doing what you're doing. I could not agree with you more. I mean, I think the reason I love it so much is not because I'm a teacher, but because I'm a learner. Mm. And it's almost like the more you know, the less you know. You know, I've explained hyponatremia 10,000 times and yet I still find hyponatremia such a complex subject, and the more I know, the more I really struggle with, you know, just the mechanics of it, and why does this work, why does this not work? Um, So it's very humbling, is all I can say. You know, I think the things that I'm really secure in are how to treat patients, how to treat other people in the care team, you know, how to do a good physical exam, how to interpret data, but as far as management, you know, I'm always learning. That's well put. You've sit on so many, over the years, you've done a number of, um, should I say thankless or no? <laughs> a number of administrative positions, a number of committees. Um, what motivates this? It's, is this a strong institutional commitment? Why are you being so helpful to the university? <laughs> I know they're not, they cannot possibly be giving you due credit for these things. If you could mention that again in my promotion and tenure process, no. Yeah. Um, You know what? I actually have reflected on that a lot. Um, It's kind of the same thing that motivates my love for medicine and my love for teaching. It's I love people. I love to understand what makes them tick. I like to fix problems. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to understand systems. And the hospital is about the most complicated system there is, not unlike the human body. Mm -hmm. I mean, how does this one thing relate to this other thing? And there aren't that many people that really understand this complex system, which is the organization that we work in. And so every, I kind of feel like it's been a lifelong fellowship of, you know, each committee, I sort of get a different glimpse of how does this thing work? How does that thing worth work? And so at the end of the day, I feel like I actually have a pretty good working knowledge of this, this hospital. place. Yeah. Now, how translatable is that? I don't know. If oh, somebody wow. hired me somewhere else, would I have to start all over and that's be quite, on all the committees again, probably. Really, you think it's it's um, that unique? But I think uh, that's quite interesting because unlike the body, where there are at least some textbooks to start, there is no good textbook. Although listeners can tell me if I'm wrong, there's no good textbook <laughs> textbook of how a hospital runs. No, but you know what? It's so relationship based, and I haven't worked. You know, I had lots of jobs and things before medical school, but I haven't worked in other industries, and so um, you know, maybe it's this way in all industries. But I I still think. You know, the skills that make you a good doctor make you a good leader in an institution, which is, did you listen? Did you really understand the patient's story or, you know, the 
the kind of problem that's being shared with you. Do you understand kind of people's emotional, what, you know, what's the context that they're bringing to this problem? You know, whether it's an ICU to acute care transition problem or, you know, people have feelings about these things. And so being good at kind of just relationships and listening and problem solving with people, those skills are really useful in the hospital too. Hmm. Well, that's very well put. Well, I guess I can tell by listening to you talk that you're probably excellent at your job because um <laughs> but there's not a lot of there's not a lot of people who are leaders in at medicine who speak about it uh, this way so I, but i think you're you're um you're onto something that that is that is a uniting thought well can i tell you too it's, i'm a little bit of a student of it i i have taken every leadership class that has been presented to me because um i feel like it's something we don't learn in, in our doctor job you know, what makes you a good academic physician does not necessarily make you a good leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying I'm a good leader yet. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm as they, yet untested. But, uh, but what do they teach in these classes? Um, you know, actually a lot about kind of, I, I hate to use the word emotional intelligence, but mm-hmm. sort of, um, y- you know, how to understand the various stakeholders who are coming to a you know, coming to solve a problem and what's important to them and how to balance different people's needs. Um, so I'm I'm a student of leadership. I'm also somebody who loves going to committees. I know this sounds That's crazy. so no, okay. lame and you're like, want to no, poke yourself surprised. in the eye. Uh-huh. But um, partly because I like to see how other people run committees and what works and what doesn't. Um, you know, I've been to a lot of boring meetings in you, my okay, life. Okay. I hope never to run them that way. Uh-huh. Um so, how, yeah. do you, how do you run it? Or what? I didn't want to put it that way. I put um, what are the things that make running it um, smoother? I find I've I can't even think of the last time I've been to an efficient meeting. It's often devolves into yeah. I, prep work helps. I so knowing what you want to accomplish out of the meeting helps a lot. Um, you know, having an agenda, having people prepared, knowing that you know they need to come prepared to do their part of the meeting, um, but also just. Like really, my favorite part is that five or ten minutes at the beginning of the meeting when you just talk, mm-hmm. because I think people are so much more productive when they can relate to each other. Um, and if I know about them and their family, or you know that vacation they just went on, and I ask about it, I just feel like, you know, that's something we're all kind of longing for in our day is more human connection. And mm-hmm. so, meetings can be a way to do that. Oh. I would be lying if I said they were all like that. <laughs> I still go to some boring meetings. I'm confident if you ask the leadership team, I lead some boring meetings. So <laughs> I don't want to give myself too much credit. Well, that's fascinating. Well, I want to thank you for coming here on the plenary session stage and talking about these interesting topics. I enjoyed our discussion. And it's good to know that um, there have been improvements in the, I think, um, impartiality of OHSU lectures <laughs> over the years. Well, thank you very much for having me. And also, I just want to tell you, I, I am a listener of the podcast, even though I'm not on Twitter. And I think what you're doing is really important. I don't think there are a lot of voices out there that are challenging, um, you know, that A, have your skill set and, and that really challenge dogma in the way that you do. So I think it's really important work. Oh, thank you so much. And what keeps you off Twitter? You want to <laughs> preserve your time. Um, I want to preserve my time. Two two reasons. One is I really like my kids and my husband. And when I go home at night, they're enough. I've got a 15-year-old and 11-year-old. Um, and I'm constantly driving to and from some or other sporting practice. So I can't <laughs> be on my phone for that. Um, the second is I think context is important. And one of the things I dislike about Twitter is you kind of have an emotional reaction to that tweet, but you don't necessarily know the context. And I just would, you know, I probably will wind up on Twitter someday. I actually just, our division just developed a Twitter page, which I guess I might need to get on it. But I I kind of prefer to read the whole news story rather than just the headline sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the risk with Twitter. Yeah, I agree with you. And um, I think that is the risk. And I do think that it seeps into your time in that way. So I, you know, I think you're you're on to something um Dr. i am on instagram though so oh, you are. and that takes up some of my time so i'm not i'm not perfect i try i i i uh i'm, I'm not on i'm on, i'm only on the one uh but i can't handle any more uh dr halverson thanks so much for coming on plenary session we hope to have you back and thanks for this very interesting commentary the expert halo effect which listeners should check out in jama you've been listening to plenary session 
Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>